Chapter Four of Unicorns. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Unicorns by James Honecker. Chapter Four. Artsebashev. Part One. Once upon a time, Maurice Maeterlinck wrote, "Whereas it's far away from bloodshed." battle cry and sword thrust that the lives of most of us flow on and the tears of men are silent today and invisible and almost spiritual this is a plea for his own spiritualized art in which sensations are attenuated and emotions within emotions the shadows of the primal emotions are spun into crepuscular shapes but literature refused to follow the example of the belgian dreamer and since the advent of the new century there has been a recrudescence of violence a melodramatic violence that must be disconcerting to matterlink it is particularly the case with russian poetry drama and fiction that vast land of promise and disillusionment is become a trying-out place for the theories and speculations of Western Europe. No other nation responds so sensitively to the vibration of the time spirit. No other literature reflects with such clearness the fluctuations of contemporary thought and sensibility the slav is the most emotional among living peoples not that mysticism is missing indeed it is the keynote of much russian literature but it was the clash of events the march of ideas which precipitated young russia into the expression of revolt pessimism and its usual concomitant materialism there were a bloodshed battle cries and sword thrusts and tears tangible not invisible in the uprising of ten years ago the four great masters gogol dostoevsky turgenev and tolstoy still ruled the minds of the intellectuals but a younger element was the yeast in the new fermentation. Chekhov, with his epical Inuai, with his tales of mean, colorless lives. Gorky and his disinherited barefoot brigade. The dramatic Andreev, the mystic Sologub, Kuprin, Zensky, Kuzmin, Ivanov, Ropshin, Zaitsev, Chapygin, Serafimovich. I select a few of the new romancers, not to mention such poets as Bloch, Remizov, and Ivanov, are the men who are fighting under various banners, but always for complete freedom. Little more than a decade has passed since the appearance of a young man named Michael Artsebashev, who, without any preliminary blaring of trumpets, has taken the center of the stage and still holds it.
he is as slavic as dostoevsky more pessimistic than tolstoy though not the supreme artist that was turgenev of gogol's overwhelming humor he has not a trace instead a corroding irony which eats into the very vitals of faith in all things human gorky despite his bitter nickname is an incorrigible optimist compared with Artsebashev. one sports with nietzsche the other not only swears by max stirner but some of his characters are sternerism incarnate his chosen field in society is the portrayal of the middle class and proletarian to andre villard his friend and one of his translators the new russian novelist told something of his life a life colorless dreary bare of dramatic events born in a small town in southern russia eighteen seventy eight michael artsebashev is of tatar french georgian and polish blood his great-grandfather on the maternal side was the polish patriot kosciuszko his father a retired officer was a small landowner in the lad there developed the seeds of tuberculosis his youth was a wretched one at school he was unhappy because of its horrors he has written of them in his first story pasha tomanov and he drifted from one thing to another till he wrote for a literary weekly in the provinces founded by a certain miralubov to whom he ascribes his first lift in life fellow contributors at the time were maxim gorky leonid andreev kuprin and other young men who like artsibashev have since arrived his first successful tale was ivan lande it brought him recognition this was in 1904 but the year before he had finished sanin his masterpiece though it did not see publication till 1908 this was three years after the revolution of 1905 so that those critics were astray who spoke of the book as a naturally pessimistic reaction from the fruitless uprising pessimism was born in the bones of the author and he needed no external stimulus to provoke such a realistic study as sanin whether he is happier healthier where he has married and raised a family we know not personal as his stories are said to be their art renders them objective the world over sanin has been translated it is a significant book and incorporates the aspirations of many young men and women of the russian empire it was not printed at first because of the censorship 
and in Germany it had to battle for its life. It is not only written from the standpoint of a professed immoralist, but the Russian censor declared it pernicious because of its defamation of youth, its suicidal doctrine, its depressing atmosphere. The sex element, too, has aroused indignant protests from the clergy, from the press, from society itself. In reply to his critics, Artsebashev has denied libeling the younger generation. Sanin, he says, is the apology for individualism. The hero of the novel is a type. In its pure form, this type is still new and rare, but its spirit is in every frank, bold, and strong representative of the new Russia. And then he adds his own protest against the imitators of Sanin, who flooded the literary world with pornographic writings. Now, Whatever else it may be, Sanin is not pornographic, though I shall not pretend to say that its influence has been harmless. We should not forget Werther and the trail of sentimental suicides that followed its publication. But Sanin is fashioned of sterner stuff than Goethe's romance, and if it be dangerous, then all the better. Test all things, and remember that living itself is a dangerous affair. Never has the world needed precepts of daring, courage, individualism, more than in this age of cowardly self-seeking, and the sleek promises of altruism and its soulless well-being. Sanin is a call to arms for individualists. And recall the Russian saying, Self-conceit is the salt of life. Part 2 That Artsebashev denies the influence of Nietzsche while admitting his indebtedness to Nietzsche's forerunner, Max Stirner, need not particularly concern us. There are evidences scattered throughout the pages of Sanin that prove a close study of Nietzsche and his idealistic superman. Artist, as is Artsebashev, he has densely spun into the fabric of his work the ideas that control his characters and whether these ideas are called moral or immoral does not matter. The chief thing is whether they are propulsive forces in the destiny of his puppets. That he paints directly from life is evident. He tells us that in him is the debris of a painter compelled by poverty to relinquish his ambitions because he had not the money enough to buy paper, pencil, color. Such a realistic brush has seldom been wielded as the brush of Artsebashev.
I may make one exception, that of J. K. Huysmans. The Frenchman is the greater artist, the greater master of his material, and, as Havelock Ellis puts it, the master of the intensest vision of the modern world. But Huysman slacks the all-embracing sympathy, the tremulous pity, the love of suffering mankind that distinguishes the young Russian novelist, a love that is blended with an appalling distrust, nay, hatred of life. Both men prefer the sordid, disagreeable, even the vilest aspects of life. The general ideas of Artsebashev are few and profound. The leading motive of his symphony is as old as Ecclesiastes. The thing that hath been is that which shall be. It is not original, this theme, and it is as eternal as mediocrity. But it has been orchestrated anew by Artsebashev, who, like his fellow countrymen, Tchaikovsky and Mussorgsky, contrives to reveal to us, if no hidden angles of the truth, at least its illusion in terms of terror, anguish, and deadly nausea produced by mere existence. With such poisoned roots, Artsebashev's tree of life must soon be blasted. His intellectual indifferentism to all that constitutes the solace and bravery of our daily experience is almost pathological. The aura of sadism hovers about some of his men. After reading Artsebashev, you wonder that the question, is life worth living? will ever be answered in the affirmative among these humans, who, as old Homer says, hasten hellward from their birth. The corollary to this leading motive is the absolute futility of action. A paralysis of the will overtakes his characters, the penalty of their torturing introspection, it was Turgenev, in an essay on Hamlet, who declared that the Russian character is composed of Hamlet-like traits. Man is the only animal that cannot live in the present. A Norwegian philosopher, Søren Kierkegaard, has said that he lives forward, thinks backward. He aspires to the future. An idealist, even when close to the gorilla, is doomed to disillusionment. He discounts tomorrow. Russian youth has not always the courage of its chimera, though it fraternizes with the phantasmagoria of its soul. Its golden street soon becomes choked with fog. The political and social conditions of the country must stifle individualism, else why should Artsebashev write with such savage intensity? 
his pen is the pendulum that has swung away from the sentimental brotherhood of man as exemplified in dostoevsky and from the religious mania of tolstoy to the opposite extreme individual anarchy where there is repression there is rebellion max stirner represents the individualism which found its vent to the prussia of eighteen forty eight nietzsche the reaction from the prussia of eighteen seventy forestalled the result of the 1905 insurrection in Russia. His prophetic soul needed no proof. He knew that his people, the students of intellectuals, would be crushed. The desire of the clod for the cloud was extinguished. Happiness is an eternal hoax. Only children believe in life. The last call of the devil's dinner bell has sounded. In the scenery of the sky there is only mirage. The moonlit air is a ruse of that wily old serpent, nature, to arouse romance in the breast of youth and urge a repetition of the life processes. We graze Schopenhauer, over here leopardi but the preacher has the mightiest voice naturally the novelist says none of these things outright the phrases are mine but he points the moral in a way that is all his own what then is the remedy for the ills of this life is it misery irremediable why must mankind go on living if the burden is so great? Even with wealth comes ennui or disease, and no matter how brilliant we may live, we must all die alone. Pascal said this better. In several of his deathbed scenes, the dying men of Artsebashev curse their parents mock at religion and here is a novel nuance abuse their intellectual leaders semyonov the student who appears in several of the stories abuses marx and nietzsche of what use are these thinkers to a man about to depart from the world it is the revolt of stark humanity from the illusions of brotherly love from the chiefest illusion self artsibashev offers no magic draught of oblivion to his sufferers with a vivid style that recalls the tolstoy of the death of ivan ilyich he shows us old and young wrestling with the destroyer their souls emptied of all earthly hopes save one shall i leave not god will be done not the roseate dream of a future life only why must i die though the poor devil is submerged in the very swamp of life but life life 
even a horrible hell for eternity rather than annihilation in the portrayal of these damn creatures artsibashev is elemental he recalls both dante and dostoevsky he has told us that he owes much to tolstoy also to goethe hugo dostoevsky and much to chekhov but his characters are usually failures when following the tenets of tolstoy the great moralist and expounder of non-resistance he simply explodes the torpedo of truth under the arc of socialism this may be noted in ivan lande now in the english volume entitled the millionaire where we see step by step the decadence of a beautiful soul obsessed by the love of his fellows it is in the key of tolstoy but the moral is startling not thus can you save your soul max stirner is to the fore don't turn your other cheek if one has been smitten but smite the smiter and heartily however not avails you must die and die like a dog a star or a flower better universal suicide success comes only to the unfortunate and so we swing back to edward von hartmann who in his philosophy of the unconscious counsels the same thing a ferocious advocate of pessimism and the disciple of arthur schopenhauer by name mainlander reached world destruction through the race suicide but all these pessimists seem well fed and happy when compared to the nihilists of artsebashev he portrays every stage of disillusionment with a glacial calmness not even annihilation is worth the trouble of a despairing gesture qui bono revolutionist or royalist your career is if you but dare break the conspiracy of silence a burden or a sorrow happiness is only a word love a brief sensation death a certainty for such nihilism we must go to the jungles of asia where in a lifelong silence some fanatic fatidically stares at his navel the circular symbol of eternity part three but if there is no philosophical balm in gilead there is the world of the five senses and the glorious world it may prove if you have only the health courage and contempt for the chinese wall with which man has surrounded his instincts there are no laws except to be broken no conventions that cannot be shattered there is the blue sky brother and the air of the heath brother drop the impedimenta and lead a free rowing life how the world would wag without work 
no one tells us not didactic the novelist disdains to draw a moral there is much stirner some nietzsche in sanin who is a handsome young chap a giant and a blonde barbarian it is the story of the return of the native to his home in a small town he finds his mother as he left her older but as narrow as ever and his sister lydia one of the most charming girls in russian fiction sanin is surprised to note her development he admires her too much so for our western taste however there is something monstrous in the moral and mental make-up of this hero who is no hero he may be a type but i don't believe in types there are only humans his motto might be what's the difference he is passive not with the fatalism of oblomov goncharov's hero not with the apathy of charles bovary or the timid passivity of frederic moreau he displays an indifference to the trivial things of life that makes him seem an idler on the scene when the time arrives for action he is no skulker his sister has been ruined by a frivolous officer in garrison and she attempts suicide her brother rescues her not heroically but philosophically and shows her the folly of believing in words ruined very well marry and forget however he drives the officer to suicide by publicly disgracing him he refuses a duel punches his head and the silly soldier with his silly code of honor blows out his brains a passive role is sanin's in the composition of this elaborate canvas the surface simplicity of which deceives us as to its polyphonic complexity he remains in the background while about him play the little destinies of little souls yet he is always the fulcrum for a climax i have not yet made up my mind whether sanin is a great man or a thorough scoundrel perhaps both a temperamental and imaginative writer is artsebashev i first read him 1911 in french the translation of jacques povolotsky and his style recalled at times that of turgenev possibly because of the language in the german translation he is not so appealing again perhaps of the difference in the tongues as i can't read russian i am forced to fall back on translations and they seldom give an idea of personal rhythm unless it be a turgenev translating into russian the three tales of his friend flaubert 
Nevertheless, through the veil of a foreign speech, the genius of Artsibashev shines like a crimson sun in a mist. Of course, we miss the caressing cadence and rich sonorousness of the organ tone Russian language. The English versions are excellent, though, naturally enough, occasionally chastened and abbreviated. I must protest here against the omission of a chapter in Breaking Point, which is a key to the ending of the book. I mean the chapter in which is related the reason why the wealthy drunkard goes to the monastery, there to end his days. Years ago Mr. Howells said that we could never write of America as Dostoevsky did of Russia, and it was true enough at the time nor would we ever tolerate the nudities of certain Gallic novelists. Well, we have, and I am fain to believe that the tragic issues of American life should be given fuller expression, and with the same sincerity as Artsebashev's, whose strength is his sincerity, whose sincerity is a form of his genius. The very air of America makes for optimism. Our land of milk and honey may never produce such prophets of pessimism as Artsebashev, unless conditions change. But the lesson for our novelists is the courageous manner, and artistic, too, with which the Russian pursues the naked soul of mankind and dissects it. He notes, being a psychologist as well as a painter, the exquisite recoil of the cerebral cells upon themselves, which we call consciousness. Profoundly human in his sympathies, without being in the least sentimental, he paints full-length portraits of men and women with a flowing brush and a fine sense of character values but he will never bend the bow of Balzac. Vladimir Sonin is not his only successful portrait. In the book there are several persons. The disgraced student Yuri, who is self-complacent to the point of morbidity, his lovely sister and her betrothed, the officers are excellently delineated and differentiated, while the girls, Zina Karsavina and her friend, the teacher, are extremely attractive. Karsavina is a veracious personality. The poor little homeless Hebrew who desires a light on the mystery of life could not be bettered by Dostoevsky. For that matter, Artsebashev is partially indebted to Dostoevsky for certain traits of Ivan Landy, who is evidently patterned from Prince Mishkin in The Idiot. Wherever Sanin passes, trouble follows. He is looked on as possessing the evil eye, yet he does little but lounge about, drink hard, and make love to pretty girls. But as he goes, 
he snuffs out ideals like candles. As Artsebashev is a born storyteller, it must not be supposed that the book is unrelieved in its gloom. There are plenty of gay episodes, sensational, even shocking, a picnic, a shooting party, and pastorals done in a way which would have extorted the admiration of Turgenev. Thomas Hardy has done no better in his peasant life. There are various gatherings, chiefly convivial, a meeting of would-be intellectuals for self-improvement related with blasting irony, and drinking festivals which are masterly in their sense of reality. Add to these pages of nature descriptions, landscapes, pictures of the earth in all seasons and guises, revealing a passionate love of the soil which is truly Russian. You fairly smell the frosty air of his winter days. Little cause for astonishment that Sanin, at its appearance, provoked as much controversy, as much admiration and hatred as did fathers and sons of Turgenev. Vladimir Sanin is not as powerful as Bazarov, the anarchist, but he is a pendant. He is an anarch of the new order, neither a propagandist by the act, but a philosophical anarch who lazily mutters, Let the world wag. I don't care so that it minds its own business and lets me alone. With few exceptions, most latter-day fiction is thin, papery, artificial, compared with Artsebashev's rich, red-blooded genius. I have devoted so much attention to Sanin that little space is left for the other books, though they are all significant. Revolutionary Tales contains a strong companion picture to Sanin, the portrait of the metal worker Shiver Joy, who is a revolutionist in the literal sense. His hunted life and death arouse a terrific impression. The end is almost operatic. A captivating little working girl figures in one episode. It may be remarked in passing that Artsebashev does not paint for our delectation the dear dead drabs of yesteryears, nor yet the girl of the street who heroically brings bread to her starving family, as does Sonia in Crime and Punishment. Few outcasts of this sort are to be found in his pages and those few are unflinchingly etched, as, for example, the ladies in The Millionaire. This story, which is affiliated in ideas with Sanin, is Tolstoyan in the main issue, yet disconcertingly different in its interpretation. Wealth, too, may become an incitement to self-slaughter from sheer disgust. The story of Pasha Tomanov is autobiographical and registers his hatred of the Russian grammar schools, where suicides among the scholars are anything but infrequent. 
morning shadows relates the adventures of several young people who go to petrograd to seek fame but with tragic conclusions the two girl students and badly one a suicide the other a prisoner of the police as an anarchist caught red-handed a stupefying narrative in its horrid realism and sympathetic handling the doctor gives us a picture of a pogrom in a tiny russian province town you simply shudder at the details of the wretched jews shot down ripped open maltreated and driven into the wilderness it's a time for tears though i cannot quite believe in this doctor who while not a jew so sympathizes with them that he lets die the chief of police that ordered the massacre another story of similar intensity called nina in the english translation fills us with wonder that such outrages can go unpunished but i am only interested in the art of the novelist not in political conditions or their causes perhaps the most touching story in revolutionary tales is the blood stain confessedly beloved by its author again we are confronted by the uselessness of all attempts to right injustice might is right ever was ever will be again the victims of lying propagandists and the cruel law lie on stretchers with white eyes staring upward in these eyes there was a look a sad questioning look of horror and despair always despair in life or death is the portion of these poor this was written in 1915 before the new russia was born since the beginning of the war artsebashev has served in the fields and hospitals he has written several plays one of which war has been translated it is a terrific arraignment of war his latest story the woman standing in the midst has not yet appeared here without suggesting a rigid schematology there is a composition plain in his larger work that may be detected if the reader is not confused by the elliptical patterns and the massive mounds of minor details in his novel breaking point the canvas is large and crowded the motivation subtly managed as is the case with his novels the drama plays in a provincial town this time on the steps where the inhabitants would certainly commit suicide if the place were half as dreary as depicted some of them do so and you are reminded of that curious nervous disease indigenous to siberia named by psychiatrists miryachit or the epidemic of imitation a man 
a sinister rascal, Naumov, preaches the greyness and folly of living, and this, Naumovism, sets by the ears three or four impressionable young men who make their exit with a bare bodkin for its equivalent. Naumo recalls a character in The Possessed, also the sinister hero of the Synagogue of Satan, by the dramatic Polish writer Stanisław Przybyszewski. To give us a central point, the chorus of the novel is a little student who resembles a goldfinch and has a bird-like way of piping about matters philosophical. There are oceans of talk throughout the novels. Talks about death. Really, you wonder how the Russians contrive to live at all, till you meet them and discover what normal people they are. It should not be forgotten that art must contain as an element of success a slight deformation of facts. The student watches the comedy and tragedy of the town, his brain flaming with noble ideas for the regeneration of mankind. Alas, Naumov bids him reflect on the uselessness of suffering from self-privation so that some proletarian family may eat roast larks in the 30th century. Eventually he succumbs to the contagion of resemblance, takes to drink, and hangs himself to a nail in the wall, his torn gum shoes clinging to his feet, faithful to the last. They, Dickens-like, are shown from the start. There is a nihilistic doctor, the most viable character of all about whose head hovers the aura of apoplexy. A particularly fascinating actress, an interesting consumptive, two wretched girls betrayed by a young painter, a Sanian type. That is, Max Stirnerism in action. While the officers of the garrison and club life are cunningly pictured. A wealthy manufacturer, with the hallmarks of Mr. Rogozhin in Dostoevsky's The Idiot, makes an awful noise till he luckily vanishes in a monastery. Suicide, raping, disorder, drunkenness, and boredom permeate nearly every page. Breaking Point is the most poignant and intolerable book I ever read. It is the prose complement of Tchaikovsky's so-called suicide symphony. Browning is reversed. Here the devil is in heaven. All's wrong in the world. Yet it compels reflection and rereading. Why? Because, like all of his writings, it is inevitable, and granting the exaggeration inherent in the nature of the subject, it is lifelike, though its philosophy is dangerously depressing. 
The little city of the steppes is the cemetery of the seven sorrows. However, in it, as in Sanin, there is many an oasis of consolation where sanity and cheerfulness and normal humans may be enjoyed. But I am loath to believe that young Russia, holy Russia, as the mystagogues call her, has lost her central grip on the things that must count, above all on religious faith. Then needs must she pray as prayed Desesintes in Huisman's novel A Ribour. Take pity, O Lord, on the Christian who doubts, on the skeptic who desires to believe, on the convict of life who embarks alone in the night beneath a sky no longer lit by the consoling beacons of ancient faith. End of chapter 4